Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. When you present these experiences that have been fully verified and fact-checked by a journalist, you begin to bridge that gap between our differences. One of the challenges of covering a story in another country is accurately representing the impact an event is having on the people who live there. What if you could provide a platform where those directly impacted by an event are able to tell their story from their perspective? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. The word errato is Latin for I speak, which is a fitting name for errato.world, a website that publishes first-person stories from around the world. Today I'm joined by Pamela Say, Arata World Media's CEO, and Sam Yahia, uh, the website's founder and publisher. Pamela and Sam, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. First of all, I'd like to uh, start by finding out a little bit about my guests. Pamela, let's start with you. How did you get interested in journalism and how did you end up at Arato? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for having us today. So I grew up in a very little city in western New York, about two hours south of Buffalo, almost on the Pennsylvania border. I grew up poor in a tough neighborhood, and I was faced with a lot of challenges as a young person. The library really became my safe space, and writing was my outlet. Having a pen in my hand and a piece of paper in front of me was my first love. I never stopped writing, and in my high school yearbook where it says, what do you want to be when you grow up, I said a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. (laughs) So studying journalism at St. Bonaventure was an amazing experience. It connected me with some of the most brilliant and gritty news people you'll ever find. It was awesome. I did a lot of work over the years in PR and communications, marketing, and ended up being a great fundraiser. I worked for colleges and universities, but always sort of maintained projects and writing and journalism. In 2020, I left higher ed and I went full time with my LLC. And Sam and I met through LinkedIn. He had put a job posting up and I was absolutely enamored by the concept of Orado to tell journalistically sound true stories of real people in their own words. I found it to be both powerful and compelling getting to know Sam's deep passion for the project. And he has a real heart for journalism, for humanity, for healing divisions and addressing global problems. And I thought, you know, this is something I can help build. I'm a builder, an executive, a a data nerd and, and a leader and a journalist. So it was something I could pour all my talents into and see the outcomes almost immediately. So this first year with Sam has been an absolute blast. Well, that's a, that's a great thing to say about your boss and the, uh, the company that you're working for. And uh, people who pay attention to our podcast who may notice these things, this yet again is another Bonaventure graduate, which is the same as one of our, um, our producers, Amber Healy, and also another guest from Western New York, where I have family. So <laughs> this is a subtext to our larger podcast going on. But Sam, Arado seems like a really interesting approach to journalism. How did you get involved in journalism and how did you end up founding Arado? Michael, I had originally founded Arado. I had spent 15 years 
earlier in my career in the entertainment business, producing the popular performing arts. And one of the measures or one of the ways we actually garnered attention was by inviting journalists to come and actually do stories with the, with the artists. And we worked with all the major uh, jazz artists. What I found really compelling was listening to these artists tell their stories, their anecdotal stories about their lives and their experiences. And there was this edge and there was this advantage to hearing a story in their own words. They were passionate, they were emotional. And for me, it was really quite gripping. And I thought, you know, this is a genre of content or a genre of storytelling that I think really deserved to be dedicated to a channel on its own. And it wasn't until the actual advent of the internet that all of a sudden I thought, this is an idea which is time has come. And so in mid or 2000s, between 2005 and 2011, I assembled a group of journalists and we began to prove the actual model and we gathered stories from around the world. We built a website, we popped it onto the website and to my surprise and to my pleasure, it was very well received. We won awards. We were voted as one of the next media sites for the internet. The only thing was that I couldn't figure out what the revenue model was. And that kind of stumped me. I was trying to figure out how this is going to work out. And at that time, I was preoccupied with a number of core businesses. I had 250 employees, and 13 businesses. And so I decided to kind of shelve it and postpone it. Fast forward, I sold all of my businesses in 2019, and in March of 2020, for the first time in living history, we were all confronted with a common threat, the global pandemic. And it is at that point in time that I thought, you know, people's experience all over the world is different, albeit that we are all facing the same challenge. And I thought, this is really the opportunity where we need to actually consider this at the same time, I was really nervous and I was uncomfortable that readers could not distinguish the difference between fact and fiction from what they read on the internet. Trusted media had, had eroded. It mean, it had really just kind of imploded by the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation and the manipulation of facts. And so at that, that point in time is I thought, you know what, I need to actually dust this off and we need to relaunch it. Except for this time, I made a distinguishing difference of actually doing it as a nonprofit. I chose to do it as a nonprofit because the fact that I didn't want anyone to accuse us of wanting to do this because we wanted to get rich. This is something that's really important. We are at a very, very critical stage in what I consider to be our evolution. And the fact that facts can be skewed and these consequential elections are bringing some very, very uncomfortable leaders to the forefront. And people are being confused by people's everyday experiences. So I thought, you know what, this is now the time and I have the opportunity and I have the blessing of having Pamela with me, who is an unbelievable leader. And we have put together a group and a team that I can't tell you how proud it makes me to be working with them. So why the choice for first-person narrative? You know, what does that bring to the journalism that just, you know, traditional type of journalism wouldn't? You know, the model of traditional and conventional reporting where a reporter comes and actually interviews both sides of an issue, synthesizes that information, and provides the balanced story, 
that is no question that deserves to be maintained and it deserves to be supported. However, it is the free-for-all of the internet that allows people to say whatever they want to say. And it is the erosion of this trust in media that compelled me to say, we need to come out with a brand where we can give you the eyewitness version, the experience, the emotional adventure that somebody has gone through in the experience that they've gone through. Now, it's not the only version, it's not the only, if you will, interpretation of what they've seen, but it is the interpretation of that human individual. And the fact that everyone should have the sovereign right to be heard and their voice to be heard, and that we have the technology and we have journalists from around the world that allows us to be able to make that happen, is I thought, you know, this is the kind of enriching content that not only deserves to be established, but it deserves to become a legacy and kind of a wire service to enrich the traditional reporting of media events. I guess the question I have about this is, when we talk about a first-person narrative, there are reporters who do that, who do immersive journalism. They go out and, you know, they water ski or they climb a mountain or whatever, and then they write about it, that experience. Is that a better description of kind of what you're doing? Or are you actually, you know, seeking out people to write particular types of stories? Or are you looking for pitches from people who are somehow involved in a particular issue? Yeah, you know, Michael, what we do is different than, than what you described. So we tell first-person stories in the voice of the subject, but every one of those stories is written and verified by a journalist. So they aren't memoirs or, you know, personally written stories about your own experience. A journalist actually identifies a subject that has been through a world event and then pitches the story to us. And that journalist has to meet a verification test and really abide by all the ethics and integrity of journalism. So we call it first person journalism. And it's really an emerging form of journalism. We've seen several instances of it pop up in recent months in a lot of the mainstream news outlets, but Orado is the only organization that's exclusively doing first personal journalism and at this scale. So it's kind of, it's our niche. We hold this corner of the market. And what we believe is that first person journalism is a profound tool that brings depth of understanding to these worlds, world events. So a couple quick examples. We saw it when the Taliban overthrew Afghanistan and when Russia invaded Ukraine, our first person stories from people who were actually experiencing the event went deeper than these sort of sound bites that you would see or hear on the news. So it kind of creates an archive of stories that are like a notary public of world events. But as Sam mentioned, can also begin to sort of supplement traditional news coverage through things like reciprocal agreements. And I would say too that these kinds of stories provide the audience with an opportunity to grasp this sort of deeper understanding. So a first person narrative has the power in some ways to, to heal the human divide. So we've often heard people say it's, it's hard to hate when you're face to face. And, you know, when you present these experiences that have been fully verified and fact-checked by a journalist, 
you begin to bridge that gap between our differences and invite people from all places and experiences to share human human experience of a world event. In some ways, I think it's critical to the future of humanity given the global challenges we're facing. I know one of the one of the criticisms when we when we talk about fake news and opinionated news is this idea that, well, all I want is the facts of the story. I don't want, you know, such and such, you know, network or news outlet or person telling me what to do. Quite often, the criticism that you hear is that's editorial. That's not really fact-based. Do the readers understand the level of fact-checking that goes into these stories? Yeah, I think it's something we talk about pretty openly. We've actually been embraced by colleges and universities, not only throughout the U.S., but internationally, who are saying first-person journalism is an emerging form. We're not teaching yet, it yet. It's not built into our curriculum. And so they've you know, authorized their students to come into our workshop and internship program. And we've created you know, teaching tools and like a digital course on this. And so there is, it's definitely valid and we're continuing to push that message out. I think when it comes to bias, most journalists would agree that absolute neutrality is impossible to achieve. We're humans, you know, whether you're a journalist or not, you have biases and that school of thought has evolved to include things like implicit bias and confirmation bias. We actually think an Orado story, we're not claiming to be perfect or like the end all be all, but we're part of a system, right? And at Orado, we have a bit of an edge because in a traditional news story, the human being writing it is selecting which facts and which quotes to present. With an Orado story, we connect readers with the witnesses, the whistleblowers, the victims, you know, and we give greater detail of the entire moment. It's their experience of the event. And then we really focus in on that crystallizing moment. So we avoid long narratives like about their views, their political commentary, social commentary. It's just what happened to them and we verify it. And then in the background, that's where we present facts, you know, statistics about the topic, the prevalence of the issue, what research has been done. So, you know, it's a bit of a fantasy, I think, that any person, journalist or not, is 100% exempt from bias, but we think our model has become this sort of powerful tool to fight misinformation and disinformation. So, yeah, I think, you know, whether it's, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we try to balance it. So we told stories of Ukrainians fleeing. And we told stories of non-Ukrainians from other countries that were fleeing. We told stories of medical professionals and black people who experienced racism trying to get out and stories about young people who chose to stay and fight and young people who chose to flee. So creating some balance in that way. Just wanted to add that, you know, contrary to submersive, immersive journalism, in Arado, the subjects are never paid for their story. Only the journalists are formally engaged and charged with the responsibility of not only writing the story in the first person, but verifying the veracity of that event. So there's no motivation for somebody just to tell a story because they're going to get paid. And that's a distinguishing difference that we bring to the table. 
that we're not motivating actual our story subjects. We just want to be able to carry the listener through. We want to give the, the listener or the reader an opportunity to be able to actually emotionally appreciate the challenge and the toll that that subject has experienced. Here's a nuts and bolts question. The stories, as they're published, have the writer's byline? Yes, the author is listed. If you look at stories on our website, you'll see if you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's an author box that shares, you know, the photo and the bio of the journalists themselves and any links to their social media or website, other content, that sort of thing. Okay. This is really kind of a fascinating approach because, you know, as you kind of acknowledged, traditional journalists are taught that the last person that needs to be in a story is the person who's writing the story or who is, you know, the reporter who happens to be on the scene and, and is covering something. You, you almost want to make yourself invisible because that's part of the detachment with which we are supposed to, to cover things. Although, you know, as I said before, there are such things as immersive journalism and first-person narratives, which is something that's been around for a while. But this obviously seems quite different. Tell me how the the newsroom functions in the sense of, well, let's talk about Ukraine. You know, the Ukraine story develops. I mean, do you put out assignments? Do you say, we're looking for some reporters who can help us identify people and write stories from a first-person perspective of people who are experiencing things in Ukraine? What's your process, I guess? That's a great example is the Ukraine because, you know, I had been watching the news and and this was before anything big happened. So, you know, as an editorial team, we're always kind of out there paying attention, seeing what's happening. Like, And it was at the point where there was just these very quiet little news bites coming out about like, Russian troops amassing at the border, but nobody was talking at that point about, you know, there's going to be some full scale invasion. It, it seemed unheard of. But as the editorial team, we're watching this and I'm thinking this could be a powder keg. I wonder what's going to happen here. And typically in a situation like that, we would look at our pool of contributors. So we've got over 200 journalists that are assessed and vetted and can write for us literally every continent. But we didn't have anybody in Ukraine. So we didn't have people already part of our process that we could go to. So what I did in that case was I looked, you know, I went on Twitter and different journalism websites and I sought out respected journalists who were engaged and involved in that community and ended up connecting with this wonderful young journalist who was doing a lot of reporting sort of on the like social impact side, just reached out to her. And this is kind of how we do it. So I sent her some emails and notes, like maybe a Twitter message. And we ended up having Zoom call and we got her vetted and into our process. And she wrote a couple stories for us before things, you know, really sort of spiraled out of control there. And they were a bit more historical and contextual. And then the war started and she found herself in serious danger. Her father was a government official and, you know, they're fleeing and she, I'm messaging her and saying, are you okay? I'm worried about you. And she's writing back and saying, you know, I'm in an underground bunker. I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I have spotty service. And this was like a real experience we had with her. She had to actually kind of 
drop out of her commitment to write stories for us because of the level of danger. And it was at that point that I said, Yulia, I'd like to, I would like to be the journalist and interview you about what you're going through in this moment. And we ended up producing a heart-wrenching story. I can't even talk about it without feeling emotional about her making her way from first from Kiev and then some other cities all the way to the the western border of Ukraine and with her baby sister and her mom and what that was like and so after that we continued to you know connect with our contributors and our staff we have this really wonderful channel on Slack called Inside Orado it's like the water cooler where all of our contributors can get together talk chat ask questions engage with us we started to just get more and more stories from our existing pool of contributors and staff. And so we ended up publishing like half a dozen really good stories out of Ukraine. Is there any particular focus or area you think this works better in? Is it political, you know, something involved in uh, government offices or because it's a, a first person narrative, is it you're particularly looking for types of stories where that type of writing is going to sort of shine? I think wherever it is that governments are trying to actually skew the fact, you know, we now have 100 million refugees in the world, the most that we've ever had in, in the history of mankind. There is a, an ethnic cleansing in China. There is these wars that are happening in different spots all over the world. Wherever there's conflict in the information that we are getting, wherever there is doubt, about what are the facts of what's actually going on on the ground, I think Arado has a place to, has a role to play. And it gives me tremendous pride to be able to actually look for those people who are prepared and have the courage to tell their story, even if it's in their own experience, it's still a nugget of fact that you know, readers can assemble and can consider as they gather sources and gather stories from various facets to make up their own mind. And so I think we have a role to play in the court of public opinion. And that's what Arado does. It brings another nugget of truth to the overall assembly of facts so people can walk away and make up their own mind. I like the idea of bringing in this other other perspective. You know, we talked about this on the podcast where, you know, some emergency or some event occurs and outside reporters are sort of helicoptered in or parachuted in, I guess is the way they say it, to cover a story and they have no context or any connection with the community. And so, you know, the, the reporting can quite often be just sort of whatever was handed to them by the, the local officials or whatever person they're able to grab who may not have a, a real experience or perspective on a story. So, you know, making that the focus, any journalist with a degree of, you know, storytelling expertise understands that the human perspective is, is the thing that you need to get into your stories as much as possible, because that's what's going to connect you with your readers. I'm still kind of hung up on the, the logistics of this. I know you said you have a sort of a large base of contributors. Are you taking pitches from, you know, freelancers? What are you looking for in a pitch? 
So we mentioned that we have over 200 journalists, and that includes photographers, videographers, even like illustrators. So it's a variety. Most of them are obviously journalists that do written journalism, but they're all over the world. And as I mentioned, they have to go through sort of an assessment process. So we ask anyone that wants to write for Orado to, you know, just like if you were writing for another news outlet, you have to be interviewed and hired. We, we have an assessment tool that's online. It has them submit their writing samples and the editorial team will review every single one of those. And you know, not everybody gets approved, so it is competitive. And we're looking for legitimate and emerging journalists. Sometimes the journalists come to us with English as a second language or speaking very little English. And so we take that into account. We have tools in our repertoire to help them learn and grow. And we do our best as a team to work together with them. And once they've been vetted and they're approved as an Orado contributor, then there's a whole slate of tools that they have access to that are all digital and automated. And there's, you know, the forms for pitching, there's forms for submitting your draft. We have automation set up for the the editorial team to communicate back and forth with them. Like everything is just very smooth and simple and automated. And, you know, we, we have a, the Inside Orado channel, which is, as I mentioned, the water cooler where they can join. And it's like a, a built-in community where we can engage. And if they're having issues or they're stuck on something, they can ask questions. Sam and the team will post story ideas there. Like there's a, a breaking world event. We'll post it and say, hey, anybody interested in taking this on? You know, the payment process system is all automated where, you know, their story gets published, they get paid. It's it's pretty seamless. It is a bit of a freelancer model in terms of all of the contributors. And over time, as we grow the nonprofit side and develop our revenue streams, you know, we'll continue to grow the ability to support them and, and the like. It's a fascinating model in terms of a global digital news organization. It is really interesting because... You know, obviously when, you know, the big newsrooms sort of contracted around the world and, and they closed up their form bureaus and they were relying more on people on the ground. I mean, this is, this is a model that seems to sort of fit in that space. But then also, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for telling the stories of people who were actually involved in the events, you know, making that connection, not telling maybe the whole story per se, but telling the, the perspective of one person can be a very valuable type of reporting. You've already, you've already done quite a lot already, I guess. You know, what do you see as on the, on the horizon for Arado? What is it that you, you're not doing now or you just started doing that you want to see more of or do more of? Michael, to your point about the value and the opportunities and the advantages of Arado, a case in point was recently, of course, with these uh, golf tournaments occurring, recently there was a story about the Argentinian pro golfer, Angel Cabrera. And Angel Cabrera is actually in a, in a prison, having been convicted of, of domestic violence. And we ended up getting a story from the victim. So his girlfriend or his wife, I don't recall what she was, 
what I found really interesting was all of a sudden, as these golf tournaments were unfolding, there was a story in traditional media talking about oh, woe is Angel Cabrera. He fell from grace. And, and at one point he was at the top of, the, of his game and now he's in jail. And the lawyer was trying to actually make light and diminish the actual severity of his crime. And we were able to bring that story from the actual victim side. And it was powerful. It was powerful to be able to actually hear what it was like to be on the receiving end of that experience. And I was very proud of that experience. And I think it's very, very important that we don't allow people to actually skew the truth because it actually it's more convenient for them or it makes it easier for their lives. So that's, that's really important for one of the things that we do. And I, I really love that role that we play. As for the future, I think journalism has to evolve. I think that we need to be very, very, very concerned about misinformation and disinformation and this notion of alternate facts. And I think that we need to be able to actually look for ways to be able to actually give people facts and give people information that is verified so that people in the court of public opinion can actually can make up their own mind. Look, I have never shied away from the concept that I think most people share common values. And I think most people do. We're all, most of us are all horrified by what's going on in Russia and in China with the Uyghurs and in these pockets where there's ethnic cleansing. And I think that this notion of having journalists on the ground giving us first-person accounts of all of these stories that are newsbreaking, I think that not only has a role to play, but it deserves to be legitimized and it deserves to be embraced as a content enricher, as a node republic of the kind of reporting that currently comes out so that we can actually ensure that all of the facts and all of the stories are aligning and we are getting a true experience and a true picture of what it is that people are actually experiencing. I'm glad you shared that story about the golfer, because I think that is an important example of, you know, what this type of reporting can accomplish, because too often the only thing that gets reported is, you know, the sensational side or the, you know, maybe one side over the other and being able to get to, you know, let the other person whose voice isn't as powerful come forward and get to tell their story is, I mean, that's the heart of what good journalism should be. I think you've answered all my questions. Is there anything else you wanted to add to about Arado? I would just say that we're very, very encouraged by what we're seeing right now in terms of engagement. We have audience reach every country on the planet. Our fastest growing audience, which I find fascinating, is 18 to 44-year-olds. 18 to 34 year olds are the biggest pot. And then if you look at the whole scope of age demographics, 18 to 44 is together the biggest. And I find that really interesting because of a lot of statistics right now, if you read, which we do, we read them all, the big research projects coming out of journalism right now, people are saying that they don't understand international issues. They want to understand it better. They want to find places where they can learn. And though you see the readership going lower in certain areas of journalism, digital is a way that people are starting to engage more. And so I think the fact that 
these audiences between 18 and 44, though we have readers in every age category, I think the fact that they're coming to us on a regular basis and reading our content says that we're we're meeting that need. We're giving them a deeper understanding of international issues. And that's pretty encouraging to us. We don't only produce stories that are difficult and painful to read. We produce a variety of stories. In fact, some of our top five all-time stories range from things like, you know, the PGA story about Angel Cabrera that Sam mentioned to the winner of Netflix, Baking Impossible. People love that story. We have a really popular one about a three people who survived 33 days shipwrecked on a remote island. <laughs> there was one where we actually presented the testimonies, stories of multiple victims of the troubled teen industry in America. And it was right after Paris Hilton spoke out. So I think the variety of content, some of it uplifting, an Olympic gold medalist, for example, and then some of it very serious, it provides some balance. We'll continue to do that, continue to grow in that way. Well, that sounds excellent. I encourage everybody to check it out. I spent a little time on your website. There are places where you, on their website where you, if you're a reporter, freelancer looking for some work and want to le learn more about that, there's a lot of information about that that you don't always get to see on websites. I think that's a really nice thing. Sam and Pamela, thanks for coming on. It's all journalism. Thank you, Thank you Michael. Matt. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.